Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderous, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you for our time together that reminds us of that hope. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we read from Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 10, and Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Uh, we are going, we are at the end of our series. We are at the end of um, this long time that we've had over the last few years, working on the four characteristics, the four pillars of Broadway. And so the last one that we are finishing is Uncommon Unity. And um, maybe just to give you a good reminder, steadfast worship is one of them. Um, and we, in that we believe that we serve a faithful God who never fails. His steadfast love draws us to steadfast worship by responding to his word and by praying with expectation. The second one is healing community. And in healing community, we believe that we're firmly bound together by the healing work of our good father. By being transparent in our brokenness and confessing our sin and pursuing peace and forgiveness in our relationships. The next one is faithful witness. God has called us to be salt and light of the world in the city of Fort Wayne and every other place where the Holy Spirit might send us. And today we heard about the Benjamins that had been sent to Swaziland, now in Wisconsin, wherever God sends us, by proclaiming the good news of Jesus and by doing good works of kindness, justice, and mercy. 
And then we come to the one that we are coming to an end of talking about today, and common unity. That we are a diverse community brought, to, brought together by our shared experience of the love of Jesus, our King. By expressing our spiritual gifts, by welcoming each person as a unique barrier of God's image. This is, if you didn't know what we're talking, maybe you came into Broadway and we're talking about on common unity, like, what is all that all about? This is the full picture. And if you come to um, the discipleship class that Ryan and I and Katie are doing, you get to go through in detail of all these four. So um, I encourage you, if you don't know anything about them, to be part of that class. It doesn't, you don't need to be on, to be new at Broadway to do the class. So feel free to be part of that. So these four characteristics give us a framework of how we as Broadway here are called to serve God in the city of Fort Wayne and wherever the Holy Spirit sends us. They give us kind of like a direction. When you know, where you, when you know your part, you are able to do your job well. When you know your part, you are able to coordinate with others and work with others well. And these kind of give us what we are called to do at Broadway so we know how to partner with God's people in the whole world to do what we are called to do, to fulfill God's big picture. So what a better way to end this series than looking at the perfected kingdom of our Lord Jesus. I know it's, it suggests that it's the end of the story, but yes, not only suggests, it is the end of the story. The end of the story is the perfected kingdom of Jesus. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. So we're going to be looking at Book of Revelation as already you've, it has been read. And for some of you, Revelation might be a, a book that brings about a little bit of anxiety. For some people, it's a, it's a book that brings a lot of joy because they dip into it every time. For some people, it's like once in a while, I'm afraid of it. And I, I want to acknowledge that and let it known that don't worry. It is a good book. Just like any other book of the Bible, it is a good book. So don't be afraid. So I want you to realize as we start that Revelation centers on a great judgment throne that belongs to our God. That's the center of revelation, that there is a great throne on which God will sit and judge when all is final. But as we think about that, I don't want us to lose sight of a few things. Number one, don't lose sight of that. While we are here on earth, we've got a formidable fall, the enemy, the devil. I don't want you to lose sight of that. He threatens but he can't really deliver what he threatens fully. But if you think about that as well, I don't want you to lose sight. Maybe, let me say, the enemy threatens, but also the enemy twists things and sometimes has made this book of Revelation to be a place of division because that's his speciality. But I want you to think about that as you think about that as well, I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that there is a lamb not just a lamb that is slain, but a lion of the tribe of Judah. Don't lose sight of the fact again that the book, and again I'm going to say it, the book of Revelation centers on this great throne 
which God will judge and to which we will all finally come to. So as we look at Revelation, people have got different ways of looking at it. Students who are equally committed to the authority of the Bible, to the sufficiency of scriptures, have got different ways and explanations that they see this book. I, I'm not going to go into detail with that because Ryan did a great job when we walked through the book of Revelation together a couple of years ago. Um, I, some of you will remember this. Does it, does it ring a bell to some people who are here? You remember this, that the, he had this diagram that he showed us on how do people see and represent the, the book of Revelation. Different people with different views and different thoughts. And so I, I want us to take us back there that the, there is different ways to see this book. And it's okay. It's okay. Don't panic. We'll be okay. All right, I'll bring it together at the end. So there are a few other places that I want to most probably think about. The first one is that there is somebody, there are people who are uh, preterists, and these people, uh, the preterists, they look at the book of Revelation in a different way. They see it as some, as things that have already happened, as the past. They see it as things that occurred in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. That's how they see it. The second group of people is um, historicist. And these people look at the prophecies taking place in a linear progression. So they look at it differently and they see it as a prophetic timetable. Example, in these people believe that Ephesus relates to the first century AD church. These are the churches that uh, the letter is written, the letters that are written to churches. They believe that Pergamon is to the third century, the time of Constantine. Um, Tyra is the Middle Ages. Sardis is the Reformation. Phil uh, Philadelphia is the modern missionary movement. And Lois Adeshia is the only one that really affects us because it's the end time one. So it's the way that they see it, the way they interpret it. And then the idealist looks at it. As, and they think that it's described, it's, these books, like these prophecies, are descriptive of things that are happening in every generation, in every age. So they see them as things that are realities, spiritual realities that are found in every age, including our own age. So, for example, they would look at the churches and they would realize, yeah, the churches, the books to the churches, the letters to the churches were written to those churches at that time, but they've got something to do with every one of us at every time where we are. And then the last group is the futurist. And they look at Revelation as dealing with the very end of the world, meaning that the only way to look at it is think about it as the end, as the, as the end of the world. Right up at the coming of Jesus. So there are different ways and different places where people see this. But there's one thing that everybody agrees on. If they are, if they are real scholars of the Bible, they agree on that the return of Christ will be personal will be physical, will be visible, and will be glorious. They can debate about all these other things, 
but they agree on the fact that Jesus is coming back. And there's no turning back about that. There's no changing on that. Jesus will return and he will be personal and he'll be visible, he'll be glorious, we'll see him. So the disagreement on hows and whens and whats, they are understandable, it's okay. But I understand one thing for sure that we know is that Jesus is coming back. Eventually the reign of Christ will be established when his kingdom comes to its permanent fulfillment here on earth and in heaven. Jesus will return and his return will complete that eternal plan of salvation. He will usher this perfect kingdom. I'm sorry, when I talk about this, it gets me excited. So bear with me if I'm too excited. But I'm excited because this is what I'm looking forward to. I I strongly believe that a vibrant believer or a vibrant church is the one that is waiting, that is waiting earnestly for the coming of the Lord. Those people who are earnestly waiting for the coming of the Lord, you can't hold them back. So we hear here, we see in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, we saw a great multitude. We saw a number of people. It says that they they were redeemed by the blood. A number of people, they cannot be numbered. It's a multitude. And it says that there are a number of people that you cannot see. And it says they are from all the nations. For me, when I think about uncommon unity, this is one of the places where it sits. The diversity here is evident. It's from all nations. But also it reminds us that this is the time when the gospel has been preached to all nations and then the end will come. This is the fulfillment of the, of the great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. And when they say of all nations, it makes me think of two things. Number one, the gospel will be preached in all nations. And number two, that when it's preached... These nations will still keep their characteristics, their national characteristics. That's why he could tell they were from different nations. Americans, including me, now that I'm I'm an American, our American Christianity is not just the only way to follow Jesus. Our brothers in India that are following Jesus are following Jesus in their way. There are brothers that are in Africa following Jesus in their way. There are brothers that are in in wherever, in Australia, they're following Jesus in their way. God brings all nations together under this king called Jesus. John could tell, he knew that they were from all nations He was not told he could tell that they were from all nations, tribes, tongues, and languages. It tells me one thing, God loves diversity. God loves diversity. He created diversity. That's why he created a hundred types of flowers, because he loves diversity. Don't stifle it. We are not supposed to be uniform. 
We are called to be different. Ryan and I are very different. <laughs> if you haven't realized, you've got two different pastors. But we unite under the king. This is the only king who can pull diversity together and make it one thing. There is no hope of trying to bring all nations together under one sovereign king except in the kingdom of God. We would always scratch each other because I think that my way is better than yours. I think that my way of doing things is better than yours, so yours might be inferior. But there's only one place where we can all come together and that king can govern in peace. It is the King Jesus. What pulls these people together? These people. A few things to note here. Number one, they are clothed in white robes. Although they are clothed in white robes, they don't look the same. The robes look the same, but they don't look the same because they could tell they were from different nations. That means they are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. They have washed in Revelation chapter 7. It says, when he asks, who are those people? And, the, and he says to the angel, I don't know. Then the angel says to him, it's those that have washed their garments and made them white by the blood of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, for this kingdom that we are talking about, there is, a, there, there is cleansing that happens to be part of this kingdom. The blood of the lamb that he speaks about speaks of cleansing. The cleansing is not a result of our own effort because we cannot cleanse ourselves. But also I want you to note that this cleansing is not just near forgiveness of sins, but it's also change of character. It makes us pure, white, and radiant. We only have one thing to do. We cannot cleanse ourselves Jesus has brought the means. What we need to do is to employ the means. The kingdom that we're talking about today is a kingdom that is centered on the cross of its king. It's a kingdom that changes hearts and lives. It's a kingdom that changes beggars and makes them princes. These people that we see, they are recognized and they recognize that God is the source of their salvation because there they are. Salvation is not end. It is something that God gives us freely. Second thing that we see, they are carrying palm branches. This reminds us of the triumphal entry of Jesus. The palm branch in the, in the olden times at that time, in the, in the ancient Roman time, it meant Victory. They were emblems of victory. This is a sign that this multitude is celebrating a great victory. There's been a conquest. The conflict is done. There is victory. The second thing that this reminds us is the idea of that they are, they are rejoicing, carrying a harvest. Their, their work is done. Their sowing days says we sow in tears and we reap in joy. 
it's done. They've come to a place where they are reaping. Today might be a time of sowing for us. But the multitude that we see, the future that we have, is standing there with palms in our hands as reapers. Before we go further, I'm going to ask you, brother and sister, what are you sowing? Will it be a glad festival for you when the reaping comes? What kind of seed are you scattering? Is it poison seed? Or is it good seed? Are you sowing weeds? Or are you sowing good fruit? Will your harvest bring glory to God? They stand before the throne, before the Lamb who was crucified and the risen Jesus. It is called the throne of divine majesty. There is a throne, brothers and sisters, and that throne is occupied by King Jesus. Before I go further, maybe ask again, are you ready to stand on that throne? Will your robe be as white as snow? Have you dipped your robe in the blood of Jesus? King Jesus offers a way to be part of this multitude. He's the only hope. Hope has a name, and the name of the hope is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And today he is calling you and me and inviting us to be at a place where we dip our robes that are stained by sin in the blood of the Lamb and be as clean and white as snow. Only God that can take a robe and put it in red and it comes out white. That's our God. And so I'm going to ask you and challenge you, if you are here today, and we're going to take a minute here before I go on, we're going to take a minute to, to reflect on this. If you are here today, say you are invited or you're just visiting, or you've been here for a long time and you have never made that decision of accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, of getting that robe and giving it over and dipping it in the blood of the Lamb, this is an opportunity for you. Today is a day of salvation for you to join the multitude and wave those, those palm branches of victory and say salvation belongs to our God. This is an opportunity for you today. Jesus died for you and me to be saved, to be able to be able to approach the throne without fear, but with confidence. Confidence that is not of our own, but confidence in the work that he has done for us. And I want to encourage you, we're going to take a minute here. If you are at that place where, if, if, if you hear me speaking and you know and you hear and your heart is pounding faster and faster, maybe that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Maybe today is your day of salvation. Make that decision today. So we're going to take a minute here. All eyes closed. Head bowed. If you have not, there is an open invitation here. Jesus is inviting you. Your response could be coming to the altar to kneel and have somebody pray for you. Your response could be at this moment and saying, Lord Jesus, here am I. 
The Bible tells us in Romans 10 that the heart believes and the mouth confesses to salvation. Oh, precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other found I know, nothing but the Then he moves on in Revelation 21, where we read, and he speaks about the new heaven and the new earth. He says, I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And he goes on and he speaks about this. I want you to realize that this is not a new theory. A new heaven and new earth is an idea that has been there in scripture for a long time. Isaiah 65, 17 through 19 says, Behold, I create the new heavens and new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice for what I create. Behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. 2 Peter 3, 12 to 13 he says, looking for and hastening for the coming of the day of the Lord. Because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the lemons, and the elements, sorry, will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth in righteousness, where in which righteousness dwells. That's Second Peter 3. The word that is used here for new heaven and new earth is a Greek word, kindness. Kindness does not speak of something that is new in, in time. It speaks of something that is new in character, something that is fresh, something, something that is different. The word neos that is used when we speak about something that is new in time, that is young or whatever, is a different word that is used here. So this heaven that an earth that we see that is new, I propose that it is a better heaven and a better earth because it has been perfected by the king. He created, we messed it up, and he perfects it. They speak about, I want us to see these new things that are being talked about. One of the few new things that is exciting me is that I believe that there will be a new temple. It says the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. God desires to live in close relationship with his people. That's the purpose of people, that we would live with God and enjoy him. The greatest glory of heaven is is the fulfillment and the restoration of what was lost in the fall. And that's our relationship with Jesus. So some people would say, but Revelation 21, 22 says there is no temple. I did not see a temple in this city. The explanation is very clear for me when I look at it. In the past, people built temples for God to live in. But there will be no temple because God's presence will be everywhere. 
When we get to heaven, we won't need to go to a special place to meet with God. He will be with his people daily, every time, in person. At this point, we know that his Holy Spirit is everywhere and he's in us. But there will be a visible presence of God everywhere. The Bible tells us that in that city, there will be no need for the sun to shine. He will be here in person. There will be no need to have a place to go to because every place will be holy. His place and our place will be the same place. In this new creation that God speaks of here, the one who sat on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. It is the consummation of all the renewal that God has been doing. It began from day one when God created. Perfect. And then sin came and caused decay. And each time God has been perfecting. And the purposes of all this perfection will come when the new heaven and the new earth are in place. What are the four different ways that I find that God will make things new? Number one, spiritually and morally will be made new. It's easy to think about that because we're like, yeah, it's a spiritual thing, will be made new spiritually. I like what Johnny Erickson says. She's a, um, she's a lady who's in a wheelchair all her life. And she says, um, I'll read this quotation because this was really good for me when I, when I read it. She says, there are a lot of people who say to me, Johnny, being in that wheelchair, I bet you can't wait for heaven. But don't assume that all I ever do is dream about spring out of this wheelchair and jumping and dancing and kicking and doing aerobics. No. I am looking forward to heaven because of a new heart, free from sin, free from sorrow, free from selfishness. That beats everything including having, having a new body any day. The second way that God is going to make things new is the physical body. Man, I won't be needing to hold on the pulpit. I was saying to my daughter yesterday, I'll have new knees. I'm excited for new knees. Our final hope is not a disembodied spirit in heaven. It is a new body, a body like Christ's body. Why do I say that Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, our commonwealth, other version says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change the body of our lowliness to be like the body of his glory. It's a new body that would never die again. It's a new body that would not have the aches and pains of the body that we have. Tanya, who have new knees, my friend. Praise Jesus. God will make all things new. Another thing that we see that God will make new is creation itself. Verse 1 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had been passed away, and the sea was no more. And then the last and one of my favorite things is a new relationship with God. Verse 3 tells, I heard with a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 
the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself, himself will be with them. Our relationship will come to that place where God's place and our place are the same. This creation and this new creation for me is worth waiting for. It's not just my soul and my body that will be renewed, but everything, including the environment around us. Praise God for that. And as we think about that, I want us to realize that we are citizens of that age where everything is new. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are a citizen of that age. Colossians 3, 1 to 4 says, If then you are raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died in your life is hid in Christ. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. In other words, as we are here as believers, we need to set our minds on that age to come on that renewed, refreshed age to come. I want us to ponder on, the, on this greatness of this age that is coming. C.S. Lewis says this, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in, aim at earth, you'll get neither. Sometimes we think about people who think about heaven, we look at them and we think about, oh, they must not be very intelligent because they are always thinking about heaven. They should not be that intelligent. But I want to challenge that because one of the most intelligent people, not only C.S. Lewis, but think of, uh, think, think, of, think of all the people that have written in the past that are believers. Go back and read Augustine of Hippo. Go back and read and see what they say about heaven. Heaven is a goal for them. Let us not forget that our goal is heaven. We are so comfortable here on earth. And we've got so much power that we seek and we get here on earth that we get satisfied with this. This is not it. We have a better place that we are called to. Where we are going to be with the Lord forever. Paul says these afflictions of this moment are not, are not worth it to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We have a glory that will be revealed in us. You've heard people say that, oh, so and so is so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. I think I differ. And C.S. Lewis differs. This is what C.S. Lewis says. If you read in history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who laid the foundation for the, for the conversion of the, royal, of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Believers, remember, we have a heaven to go to. It's not what we hear, Lord. Our songs and everything most of the times are about here, how we enjoy being here. We haven't experienced what enjoyment means. 
We are going to experience it fully when we stand before the Father. I encourage you to be that person that is focused on heaven. Our destiny is glorious. There is no runner who runs a race not focusing at the end of the line. They don't focus on the things that are around them. They are focused on what they're going. If they kept looking at the others that are running with them, they would lose the race. We run face towards where we are going. And I want to encourage us. There is hope in running face towards heaven as we walk as believers. It is the hope that we have in Jesus that releases that radical sacrificial love that we see now on earth. Colossians 1, 4 to 5. Paul says to them, we have heard of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. It's the assurance of heaven that releases the hope in us, that makes us to be able to take risks to a point where people ask us, why do you do this? What is the reason for your hope in this? And then we are able to tell them. If we lose our sight of a perspective about heaven, then when trouble comes and challenges come, we won't be able to stand. When our focus is, we have a perfect God who's sitting on the throne, who's sovereign. When things come, we are not challenged because we know. There might be, yes, they will be challenging, but they're not going to put us on our knees. Do you have such hope, church, today? The hope of the beautiful city. The hope of a new relationship with Jesus. The hope of a new city that is clothed as a bride ready for, his, for, the, bridegroom, for the bridegroom. Is your love today as you walk today, what is fueling the love that you have today? and the work that you are doing today as a believer. I hope that is fueled by the hope that we have of heaven. The hope is Jesus. And as we do this today, I want us to go into communion together. But before we go into communion, I I, I want to just say this. The reason why I want us to go into communion is because we are hoping to be part and parcel of that great banquet in heaven. And this reminds us, reminds us, blessed are those that are invited to the banquet. And we are invited. Christ has invited us. By the tearing of his body, he has invited us. So that at the end, we are part and parcel of that banquet. In Matthew, when Jesus was doing communion with his disciples, he told them at the end that, I will not drink this until we come to the kingdom together. We are invited where the 24 elders are falling down, throwing their crowns down before the throne. We are invited to be there. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper 
of the Lamb. And that's you and me. If you've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, that's you and me. And today as we take communion, I want us to, to consider, um, there's a song that has been in my heart and I'm going, going to have to play that. But before we do that, I'm going to read the lyrics to you because I want you to consider as you come forward, pick your communion elements, go back and sit down with it. And as you sit down or as you stand in the line to come forward, I want you to consider as you hear these words that there will be a time where there will be no weeping, there will be no pain. These are the lyrics of the song. It says, On the day when I see all that you have done for me, when I see you face to face, how I long for that. They're surrounded by your grace. All my fears will be swept away in the light of your embrace. When your love is all I need, and forever I am free. Where the streets are made of gold, in your presence healed and whole. Let the songs of heaven rise to you alone because there will be no weeping, no hurt, no pain, no suffering because you hold us then. No darkness, no sick, no lame because you are holding us then. It says in this life I will stand through my joy and my pain knowing there is a greater day. There is a hope that never fails. Where your name is lifted high and forever praises rise. For the glory of your name, I am believing for that day. When the wars and violence cease, when creation lives in peace, let all the songs of heaven rise to you alone. And for eternity, all my heart will give all the glory to your name. There will be no pain, no hurt, no suffering, no darkness, no sick, no lame, no hiding, because we'll be in his presence all the time.